Thank you for tuning in to Sparks and Honey's Daily Culture Briefing. My name is Ben Grinspan, and today we're gonna to be looking at culture in the vertical, using Q, our cultural intelligence platform, to unpack trends and changes in human behavior and some more of our business bets. Joining me today as my co-briefer is the wonderful Carrera Kernick. Hello, Carrera, how you doing? And today we are eager to be joined by two, uh, two of, our, of our finest members of Sparks and Honey, uh, I guess I'd say our, our health and wellness side of things, Corey Manna and Brendan Shaughnessy, who uh, often end up uh, talking to clients about just these kind of topics. And um, obviously, if they're here, we've got to talk a little bit about that health. And we're going to take things back here a little bit to your 11th grade or grade 11 for uh, Carrera uh, biology classes and talk about superhuman immunity. And no, we are not talking uh, about you know getting more pomegranate juice uh, into your system and riboflavins. We are instead talking about uh, mRNA vaccines and their potential to make us immune to things we never believed we could be before. So it's a really good business bet, makes a ton of sense, as I'm sure most of us sitting here, possibly all of us sitting here, have an mRNA vaccine in our systems uh, right now. We A lot of people uh, benefit from this. Yeah, exactly. Some people may have gotten, you know, Ken Sino or Johnson & Johnson, there are other vaccines out there. A um, lot of signals here, close to 20,000. Uh, obviously, this is a hotly discussed topic, not just in the scientific press, but as we as as uh, the COVID-19 vaccines have gone mass, we have seen a lot more journalism about this. Um, and we'll start here with our element of culture map. We'll go through this quickly. I will say this looks like the classic vaccine map to me. You have a number of different elements uh, of elements of culture here that focus really deeply on sort of the science behind them. So nano, which is our element of culture about incredibly tiny things. So when we're talking about uh, you know, ACE inhibitors and uh, I guess binders, ACE receptors, there we go, uh, and proteins, that counts as nano. Extreme safety makes a lot of sense, obviously, when we think about vaccines and keeping ourselves safe from threats, both, I don't know, foreign and domestic. And then finally, superhuman, which we can sometimes mean talking about um, augmentation, right? And turning to tech, to, you know, uh, hardware and technology. But here, it means superhumanity, I think, in the, um, in the sense of making our bodies even better than they once were. Now, Carrera, I'm going to ask you to play the anthropologist here for a second. If we move away from our biology, what are sort of the important anthropological, sociological uh, elements of culture that we need to know about? Yeah, yeah, I'll point first to anti-science. And whenever there's a big breakthrough in a new technology, there's always gonna be a little bit dis distrust or hesitancy. We've seen that for sure. I am happy to see it ranking lower than the more scientific like nano and living matter EOCs here. The other one I'll point to is uh, moral imperative. Again, a huge conversation around vaccines for the past year and a bit has been, you know, doing your part, getting the vaccines. As we see, you know, we'll be talking today about how our uh, mRNA vaccines will be used for everything from cancer cures, malaria, uh, even curing um, cystic fibrosis. It'll be another conversation of, you know, do your part to stop the spread of, of malaria, or, you know, if we can cure this in uh, developing worlds, we, we ought yeah. to surely fund them. Yes, exactly. So let's do my favorite activity of the past two years and place a little bit of armchair epidemiologist in addition to brand strategist. And we do have to start here by talking a little bit of science. So, you know, turn those Bunsen burners up high because we're going to get into it. Um, writing in the Atlantic last spring as mRNA COVID vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna were finally hitting mass availability, Derek Thompson told us that mRNA technology was not some random lightning strike that came out of nowhere, but rather a, a major scientific achievement decades in the making. 
quote, like so many breakthroughs, this apparent overnight success, uh, you know, took more than 40 years uh, and had passed between the 1970s when a Hungarian scientist at the University of Pennsylvania pioneered early mRNA research to the day that the, the first authorized mRNA vaccine was administered in the US, December 14th, 2020. He says the dream of NR mRNA persevered uh, in part because its core principle was so simple and even beautiful. That the idea that the world's best drug developer and best drug factory could be our own immune system. Now he goes on to say that uh, cellular bodies uh, rely on proteins for just about every function. mRNA, which stands for messenger ribonucleic acid, tells ourselves what proteins to make. With human edited mRNA, uh, we can theoretically commandeer our cellular machinery to do whatever we want, make whatever protein under the sun. Quote, in the case of the coronavirus that causes COVID-19, mRNA vaccines send detailed instructions to our cells to make it uh, distinctive uh, spike protein, right? Our body then sees this fake spike protein, the one that comes with the COVID-19 vaccine, knows to attack it. And then if slash when we are uh, exposed to COVID, our system is ready and primed with the instructions to beat the hell out of it. It is why uh, people who have been vaccinated and boosted uh, have done, e even as uh, infections have spread in Omicron, why their death rates have remained really low, frankly, miraculously. Now, the article goes on to say that mRNA's promise ranges from the expensive yet experimental to the glorious yet speculative. That's probably why it's a good business bet. Um, you know, and uh, it was quoted here uh, from, a, from an official at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases of saying that 2021 was really the coming out party for mRNA and going forward, we're going to see really what it can do in the market. Now, there's a lot to this story, but I think it's important to talk about the fact that this is an innovation that is popping up at a bit of a precarious time for science. Scientists are generally well-respected, but the amount of misinformation out there uh, is, is, is threatening perhaps some of the ability here for, for us to really appreciate this moment. After all, when we landed on the moon, uh, there were only a couple cranks saying it was fake. You can have all the uh, random accounts you want uh, on various different platforms to tell you that mRNA is the tool of the devil, is uh, designed for 5G, um, but obviously none of that is right. So let's talk about the danger of BS to mRNA. Corey, um, our bet here is that this is going to go mainstream, and I think it will in the innovation sense. But what does it mean that this is a little bit more complicated than say the, um, the tangibility of sending a rocket to the moon, of watching Buzz Aldrin land there? You know, how, does, how do we grab the culture's attention uh, and in so doing its, its faith and, and frankly, its affinity for, for um, this you know, fairly new bit of science? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, it, it is definitely, as we saw in some of the EOC's uh, elements of culture, excuse me, from the prior slide, some components that are at play that would uh, potentially prohibit the adoption or the acceptance of mRNA as a you know, sign of the future. Um, I think with, with anything, um, you know, in that sort of situation, you're going to have different stakeholders who will share different perspectives about believability. I think what's, what's maybe interesting to consider is that the idea of vaccines are not new. They've been around Lord knows how many centuries, centuries. Yeah, centuries yeah. exactly. So the question almost becomes, what, maybe looking at the past, what was it about prior use cases, whether it was um, whole virus vaccines, protein subunit styles of vaccines, et cetera, that may have been used in the past that were so easily adopted that can we learn from attitudinally as a means to sort of think about driving greater adoption with this cohort 
with, with resistant cohorts today mm -hmm. on a new type of vaccine technology. In many ways, it's no different than the older vaccines um, from its function and its purpose, but yeah. it does need to be demystified in a sense relative to, I think, some of the more standardized um, types of vaccines we've used in the past. And that's a good point because what that means culturally is there is both an opening to expand mRNA vaccine technology, but also a potential danger for mRNA technology that it might infect the rest of the way that we think about vaccines. Um, okay, that's us playing biologist. Let's jump over to the anthropology department and tell us uh, a little bit more, um, Carrera, about some of these some speculative ideas, I don't know, uh, about uh, where mRNA can take us. Oh yeah, this is the speculation department over here. Uh, for this next uh, signal, we're looking at how, un until recently, most people really hadn't heard of mRNA vaccines. Now scientists believe that they may be the key to solving a wealth of health problems. So I'm gonna take you through uh, a few of them. Um, doctors are now calling this new mRNA technology a kind of renaissance, um, especially due to the compounding scientific breakthroughs in our mRNA innovations being used to study treatments in everything from therapies for cystic fibrosis and multiple sclerosis. Um, there's, they're working on a vaccine for HIV, the mRNA therapies, um, uh, could help with uh, pulmonary disease and asthma. We've got, we're working on vaccines for Lyme disease and even cancer treatments. But there's another novel idea that's kind of emerging in this space. It's the idea of uh, patient-specific individualized medicine. So in theory, you know, if you had a tumor, science uh, scientists could take a little piece of it, sequence it, and then see what's on the surface of it and then make a vaccine specifically for you. There's also potential for more like general uh, commercial health and well-being applications. For example, lactose intolerance. You know, this affects hundreds of millions of people. You know, roughly 68% of the global uh, population is lactose intolerant. I, I found that surprising. Um, but if someone is missing this protein that allows them to break down lactose and the future scientists could develop some way of delivering the message uh, via mRNA. Uh, and you know, this, this could uh, essentially turn into a billion dollar industry. The one, the last thing that I will uh, mention here is there's also, you know, this article speculates about this possibility for mRNA vaccines that blend together a bunch of different boosters, which could ward off, you know, maybe cancer and viruses all at the same time. You know, this is still speculation, but while we're speculating, uh, we, may able, we may be able to one day get to a place of superhuman immunity to the world's most dangerous ailments all in like a couple shots. So Corey, another question for you, taking what you know from our past work on uh, work at Spy uh, Sparks and Honey on one-to-one -one personalization and precision medicine, do you think personalized vaccine technology will be successful in the consumer health market? It's oh, a great question. Um, and, and I would say the theory would, would imply that yes, that's where we're going to be trending towards. I think in what I've seen through our um, historical research on the topic of precision medicine is that um, uh, customization is almost the antithesis to scale. And I think that's always a major challenge when it comes to the ability to provide services like these. It's not whether or not it can be done, but whether it can be done in a way that makes a lot of sense for organizations who might be providing that service. In doing so, what that ultimately then starts to open up questions around uh, gets us to uh, another area of research we've done a lot of uh, study on in health equity, which is access. And what happens then for those 
those um, who maybe not maybe do not have the means for that sort of customized treatment versus those that do have the means to create this very specialized um, solutions that start you on your journey to superhuman. How does that create a, a different type of health gap, income gap, et cetera, where, um, and you know, to connect it back to one of our elements of culture from a, an earlier slide, where on the blurred responsibility spectrum does that put, you know, and parties then involved in this topic. There's a lot to unpack there in terms of feasibilities versus realities um, and, and what some of the downstream implications are to that. Makes me wonder, Brendan, I'll bring you in here for one second. I'm, I'm literally sitting here and, and the question that comes to my mind is, okay, so we figure out how to do this. It turns out we have this technology. When will people know that they're superhuman? Like where would we literally draw the line at being like, I feel I am empowered to feel superhuman or it's the kind of thing where it's like, you know, um, I'm not sure maybe getting, fixing people's lactose intolerance uh, would make them feel superhuman, but it depends how much you like cheese. I don't know, What's, what are your thoughts? Yeah, well, I think uh, I'll, I'll call back a, a presentation we had at Sparks and Honey. I think it's a couple of years ago, one of our advisory board members, Jeremiah Oyang had a uh, uh, presentation all around this topic of, of precision health and precision medicine and how that gets to things like even pr precision nutrition. And I think the, the thing that Corey uh, hit on within this signal is scale and the access of that scale. So I, I think it's going to come gradually, but in ways that it's going to say that these technologies already exist. They just exist at a medical and a doctor perspective. Um, we're going to continue to see, I think, more and more of these technologies get into the hands of consumers. Um, and it's at that point that they're going to understand new aspects about their health. They're going to continue down this line of, of self-diagnoses and seeking out healthcare solutions on their own. And I even think about like the example from the weekend of uh, Mark Cuban essentially just starting his own pharmacy. So who are the, the big players that are going to come here and disrupt the system altogether that's going to empower this generation to figure out what to do with their health on their own? So I think there's a lot of different uh, moving pieces to this, but it, yeah. it'll be sooner than we know it, I would say. And how do we break Shark Tank into that? Uh, is he on that? I think he might be. You you know uh, it. <laughs> all right, let's. Uh, tell us about these uh, this really promising research about HIV vaccines. Yeah, in this next signal, we're looking at how the pharma pharmaceutical and biotech company Moderna could begin uh, clinical trials for two mRNA-based HIV vaccines in the next couple of years. Creating a vaccine that targets HIV is challenging because the retrovirus becomes part of the human genome 72 hours after transmission. So to prevent infection, high levels of neutralizing antibodies must be present at the time of transmission. Yet scientists remain hopeful that mRNA could be the key. I wanted to pair this signal with um, you know, another signal that I read about the development of a herpes vaccine, that they're actually, they were successful in animal trials and they're moving it over to trials in humans. Um, so I kind of wanted to put these two together and kind of gauge Brendan um, on what you think might happen here. You know, there's this possible near future where most of the very scary transmittable sexual diseases have vaccines or treatments and therapies. How do you think new cultural narratives will form around love, intimacy, and dating? And maybe are we in for another sexual revolution? Should we be paying attention to this? Is Durex in trouble? I mean, I think we're, to answer your last question, are we in the midst of a sexual revolution? I think all large technological revolutions tend to center around sex. If you think about porn is our, still our number one reason people go to the internet. Um, if you look at, you know, we talk about the metaverse all the time on these briefings and within our client work um, and what from a virtual reality perspective, um, teledildonics, like there is so much in the world of sex in a lot of these trends that we're talking about already. Virtual therapy um, has, has been a really huge aspect of this for, for sex therapy. So 
Um, Short answer, yes, we're definitely in the middle of a, of a sexual revolution, but I think the excitement uh, around mRNA is when we think about these, these uh, practical areas outside uh, of perhaps areas that have been very underserved or underfunded. So um, even thinking about HIV and PrEP as a remedy or as a, as a, as a solution in the interim uh, of, of actually uh, eradicating it altogether, I think the opportunity for us is to think of what are these areas that, that are chronic illnesses or, or chronic ailments that people are dealing with on a lifelong basis um, th this is a great example of, of how do we then turn this attention, this newfound uh, enthusiasm and momentum with mRNA and apply those to things that are impacting people that we perhaps don't talk about. And I think that's going to mm -hmm. the sexual revolution that's going to come from there is a destigmatization of those uh, of those transmitted diseases and, and how we tackle those and, and talk about them more openly. Yeah, I would love to. OK, let's stick with uh, I was going to say I'd love to keep talking about sex. So let's keep doing it. Um, in a piece in uh, on NPR last week, uh, reporter Jason Bobian tells us that drug-resistant bacteria, sometimes called superbugs, um, are on the rise globally, and they're now killing more people each year than HIV, AIDS, or malaria. Uh, and low- and middle-income countries are the ones being hardest hit by this, right? So um, that resistance out there is actually now one of the leading causes of death worldwide, says Chris Murray, the director of the Institute of Health Metrics and Evaluation. Murray is one of the co-authors of a new study just published in The Lancet that proves this out, which finds that in 2019, drug-resistant infections, meaning drug-resistant, you know, antibiotic-resistant, uh, you know, uh, bacteria, killed 1.2 million people and played a role in 5 million more deaths worldwide. So that's 50% more than the, well, that's, you know, 50% more than the number of Americans, for instance, who were killed by COVID, were killed uh, globally in 2019 by uh, drug-resistant infections. Now, the conventional wisdom here is that the failure of antibiotics is a first world problem, Bobian reports, but Murray in the new study shows that this is really happening all over the world. And in, and in part, it's because all over the globe, we are massively over-prescribing antibiotics. Anyone who has ever gone to the doctor, either here in the US or frankly, in the industrializing and developing world, places like Southeast Asia or Central America, you'll find that often you get antibiotics given to you for things that don't matter. I, you know, People take antibiotics to handle their colds in parts of that world. Um, this is not, of course, just a, uh, a developing world problem. It is a first world problem. We do overprescribe here in, in the US in many ways. Um, the number of antibiotics you get from a European doctor compared to an American doctor is shocking. And finally, um, there are some also bad ideas out there, like taking uh, zithromycin to deal with your COVID-19 which is a virus which an antibiotic is going to do nothing to impact. Now, this article is fairly grim. There is evidence, though, to suggest that mRNA vaccines could be developed to do a little bit of what we talked about in the first signal and the third signal, notably that, the, uh, that bacteria need to basically produce proteins that can bind to our receptors. If you have an mRNA vaccine that's, say, focused on the gonorrhea uh, bacteria uh, and its proteins, you could potentially have people uh, who are essentially resistant to infection, right? The bacteria could evolve, but we could evolve the mRNA. They're not that hard. And I want to take this here to the media for a second, because let's say this, let's be clear, the media loves talking about superbugs, Matt Drudge specifically. Um, Drug-resistant super gonorrhea is the kind of thing that is inter, of like internet clickbait gold. So Corey, we have done a number of sexual health practice uh, uh, conversations, but even bigger than that, you know, when we talk to our healthcare clients, many of them have a specific focus on people who are a little bit older, uh, who maybe be facing things like MRSA, but even lifestyle changes like being, you know, going, being single again and having to think about their, their sexual health. So I guess my question is, you know, if we're thinking about it in a really big way, how does this information, maybe the information we saw in the last signal, how does that trickle down 
to the sort of larger insurance industry provider? Is this innovation they need to just casually observe and wait for it to show up? Or do they have a bigger role to play here in maybe spurring that innovation or in encouraging it? What, what's, what's their role in this whole story? Yeah, it's, it's great. I mean, you're, you're sort of ultimately tapping into the idea of, of who, who's responsible for what, what's the ethical way to engage in this space. Um, yeah. And I sort of look at it as, um, you know, I, I do think it's an area that should be explored and, and should be um, uh, engaged in. The question is, in my mind, how do you do that in a, I'm going to use the, the S word uh, in a different context, but in a sustainable manner. And I don't mean that mm -hmm. from an environmental standpoint, but really from this idea of um, establishing really what are, what are the, the, the long-term um, implications for using mRNA. You know, one of the things we're hearing coming up now, uh, now that third booster is relatively common in first world countries is fourth booster. And is booster, yeah. is continuous boostering sustainable? And is it something that's going to provide diminishing returns on um, the effect of getting uh, a new mRNA injection? Uh, the other thing is, you know, what is, is, are, is uh, language should, should our language be evaluated? If someone is getting an mRNA shot, is it a vaccine or is it a treatment? You know, and mm. I think that there's a lot of different aspects around how you talk about it and really understand its functionality in the longer term to be able to speak responsibly, ethically, as an expert in the space providing the solution, um, that would be a means uh, as a way to sort of maybe counter clickbait, uh, but it does require a heavier level of diligence um, and responsibility that I feel um, clickbait sources do not have to live up to. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because I'm actually sitting here thinking about the fact that, you know, for most people, the great majority of the individual vaccines you will, vaccine types you will get, you get before you're like three years old, right? Uh, maybe a couple more, but as an adult, it's like the flu shot, the COVID shot. They they want to give you a shingles shot. Gardasil, if you're like a, a really young adult, and maybe that's it. Tetanus, if you you know screw up with a nail gun or something, right? Maybe if you're traveling abroad. Um, but in an age where mRNA vaccines can do a lot more, there may need to be a very different conversation about what it means to get required vaccines versus a la carte vaccines, right? Do you have to have this conversation about getting the lactose tolerance vaccine, the anti-gonorrhea, anti-chlamydia uh, vaccine, you know, all of these things that might, you know, potentially be down the line in five, 10 years, healthcare brands are gonna have to have a very different conversation with people uh, right. about that than they already are having. So I know I've brought up uh, misinformation here. Um, and I think it's really important that beyond just talking about how vaccines work and perhaps their future, we talk about their place in culture and something kind of disturbing. Uh, I wouldn't even say kind of, kind of. Something disturbing happened recently on Joe Rogan's uh, podcast and career. I was hoping you could take us through this and, and what it maybe says about the, the, the shaky future for some of this technology. Yeah, our next signal is from PolitiFact, and it's asking the question, who is uh, anti-vax darling Robert Malone? Um, in December, video of podca podcast host Joe Rogan's controversial interview with a doctor known for making false claims about COVID-19 vaccines was removed from YouTube just days after Twitter banned the doctor's uh, uh, his entire account for violating its COVID-19 misinformation policies. Dr. Malone, who gained hundreds of thousands of Twitter followers in recent months um, as he promoted anti-vaccine falsehoods, drew a comparison in the interview between COVID-19 vaccination uh, efforts in the U.S. and the environment in Germany uh, in the 1920s and 30s when the Nazi pa uh, party rose to power. So 
some some weird bold claims being um, spewed on the Rogan podcast, which is probably where you go to to hear those claims. But uh, uh, Malone's rise to right wing stardom and subsequent fall into social media purgatory is kind of underscoring how accomplished doctors might be able to exploit their credentials to spread harmful misinformation and also show the limits of platforms that are kind of doing this like whack-a-mole approach to policing mm. misinformation online. So I do have a question for Corey. Uh, when it comes to medical mistrust online, why do you think that conspirator conspiratorial thinking and this uh, tsunami of distrust in medical inst institutions is so compelling for so many people? And what can healthcare companies uh, and policymakers do to combat medical mistrust? Yeah, the, this is this is a big question, and, and it's a lot of our um, OTC clients and even our insurance clients that I've had an honor to engage with are combating this issue right now. Um, I think ultimately one of the drivers that that is this isn't revelatory, but it's the aspect of playing on fears that people have. Mm -hmm. I think is what is so incredibly compelling, um, and it's unfortunate that the sources that can play on these fears they're not bound by having to be fact checked or deemed credible from from their points of view. Uh, and, and I think in that regard, it tips the scales in terms of um, how to navigate that sort of space. Um, the, the unfortunate thing is that, you know, in some of the ways we've we've found in the research we've done with our clients who are grappling with this, is that unfortunately, the act of fact checking as a counterpoint oftentimes is ineffective um, and mm. it does not actually generate a change in perspective, unfortunately, um, which then only seems to really lead me to the idea of um, trying to really understand the root cause of um, why this audience um, ha has this belief, what's important to them that they feel is at risk um, in relation to this sort of experience um, in speaking maybe a little bit more to the emotional side of the benefit equation rather than the functional scientific and factual side of that. Now that's not to say that that isn't important, but rather than leading with that, maybe yeah. it's following with that information as support to the emotional arguments. These are all things, and that's not a hard and fast, you know, recommendation, but these are all sorts of variables that we are grappling with and trying to help our clients navigate who are in this space trying to do this very thing. So I'll, I'll jump in here for one second. First of all, I think it is, I mean, it says everything about toxic masculinity and some of Joe Rogan's issues that a random man has described himself as the inventor of mRNA vaccine when a woman is the person who actually did it and is widely credited, like the audience believes that. Um, but Brendan, I wanna bring you in here because I am very curious about what a brand like Spotify has to do in this, in this situation. They make millions off of Joe Rogan's podcast. This is like blatant misinformation. The ethical thing would be just to throw the guy off. He could find his own platform. Um, I don't know if that's gonna happen, but what, what do you imagine Spotify's work is in this, responsibility is in this space? Oh, I mean, I think uh, I'll, I'll say it's huge. I will expand on your question because I don't want to tell Spotify what to do. Uh, they can uh, partner up with us on that. Um, yeah, exactly. But, call us. <laughs> what I do think is uh, worth calling out here is just the, the, that every brand has to figure out their role within this ecosystem. And that is especially mm -hmm. pressing for thinking about a healthcare brand. What is the right audience? What is the right person? What is the right persona? Maybe it's not even a real person that is creating content. You know, we've seen a lot of doctors literally reskilling themselves to become social influencers because they feel the need to help put a voice out there proactively as opposed to be responding to these things. How do you get further upstream in this misinformation mm -hmm. hose? So I think it's how do the brands that are acting as the platforms orchestrate it and police it 
uh, or manage it? And how do the brands that are actively involved from a healthcare perspective, what's the right voice or what's the right person? And how do we, again, participate, if you will, in this entire charade? Carrera, do you want to jump in? I mean, I, I mean, we talk so much about the responsibility of social media platforms and they're making big efforts. Spotify is not a social media platform. They cannot argue that they are just a place where people post stuff. I don't know. I'm curious if you have thoughts on this. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's hard to say because we are such a divided country that for every half of the people that say, you know, we don't really want this type of information out there, there's another half of the country that is interested in it. So, so yes, they could leave Spotify, they could, you know, but Joe Rogan has the audience to start his own platform um, and, and just keep doing what he's doing and, and maintain millions upon millions of, of followers. So it is, it's a tough call that I, um, yeah. We'll have to I, reflect I on. Yeah. Um, let's talk about long live super immunity here with our last signal, Carrera. Yes. So this opinion article from the Wall Street Journal is instructing us to forget about herd immunity. Forget about it. Forget it ever. We ever, ever talked about it. It's not happening. Um, COVID-19 vaccines and prior infection don't provide lasting pro um, protection against infection and transmission, especially with the Omicron variant, as we know. Um, this That makes it possible for enough of the population to become immune to stop the virus from spreading. But the article tells us not to despair. Uh, Omicron will give much of the population what some scientists call super immunity. So this is stronger protection against new variants and even future coronaviruses. So normal life will, uh, will be possible even as the virus continues to spread and mutate. Super immunity won't necessarily stop people from being infected or transmitting the virus, but most people who get infected, even uh, a more viral variant that might come along later, will experience mild to no symptoms. So similarly, a study last month by the Oregon Health and Science University found that vaccinated people who experience breakthrough infections produce higher level of antibodies that were up to a, a thousand percent more effective than those generated two weeks after the second dose of Pfizer vaccine. Uh, the research describes this as super immunity. So this article outlines that a mix of booster shots and past infections will be the key to a super immune population. But I'd like to bring Brendan in here. You know, in the early, this is kind of like a more of a marketing question, but you know, in the early phase of the pandemic, we were all fixated on sanitizing and disinfectants. Those were like the marketing terminologies. Now we're seeing the term immunity building and immune boosting co-opted into marketing language, particularly in like food and supplement and vitamin product categories. I want to know from you, like how much more mileage is there in this consumer desire for immunity products? Is this, a, is this just going to be what we want forever now going forward? Um, or you know, what, what do you think the new phase, what do you think the new buzzword will be for like health consumer needs? I don't know what the new buzzword is going to be, but I can tell you, I think consumers are already tired on it. There was actually a report that was done last July that showed that the uh, immunity supplements market was actually going, it was way, way over in 2020. And then in 2021, by the summertime, it had already dropped off and it's um, its sales projections and market size projections were actually lower than its pre-COVID predictions. So I think already it came back down. Now, if you look at like, um, even on like Google search and uh, on the trend data there, you can see that it's picked back up in the last six months as Omicron has also picked back up. So I think that there is a desire to protect oneself, but there's also a lot of, again, our whole topic around misinformation or lack of clarity uh, around what is actually going to help boost my immunity. Is it possible to boost my immunity in the ways that I think I can by uh, you know, having emergency or whatever that might be uh, on a daily basis. So I think um, as it relates to the sort of scaling and accessibility of technologies that's going to help us interpret our, our health on a daily basis, 
I think mm -hmm. brands are going to have to prove out those metrics um, as our as our wearables and as other things around us are going to diagnose us more regularly because I think there's a lot more pseudoscience than science there is in a lot of the products marketing it today. Yeah, make it human. That's what uh, Camilla said about all of these business bets a couple of weeks ago. That's the core to every single one of them. I, for one, will be uh, making NFTs of my T and B cells. Uh, and you guys are all welcome to invest. Uh, let's jump into our in other news here. Look, um, we are not always perfect here at the Daily Culture Briefing. Sometimes things uh, fall between the cracks. Um, and I, I wanted to, to circle back here and talk about something that I apologize for not letting you know earlier about, um, which is the fact that Oscar Mayer has launched a baloney face mask. Uh, the Kraft Heinz brand partnered with Soul Mamas, a Korean beauty and skincare company, to create the face sheets, which are described as a, quote, hydrating and restoring hydrogel that promotes skin elasticity, improves hydration, uh, and moisture retention. No word how it is with uh, mustard. Quote, our baloney has a nickname, and it's B-E-A-U-T-Y, the Amazon product listing says. The throwback to the popular Oscar Mayer jingle of the, I don't know, 60s. My baloney has a first name, O-S-C-A-R. Quote, no, this sheet mask is not real baloney. Put it on your face, not your sandwich. That seems to be good advice because apparently this has witch hazel in this and I don't think you want to eat witch hazel. It is an astringent, but I have to go, you know, go back, hold myself accountable here. Please excuse the insight for us not getting this story to you earlier. I promise to do better. Um, and especially because USA Today reports that um, unfortunately the product is sold out everywhere. So you'll just have to wait for the second run of the baloney face mask, or you could probably just put cold cuts on your face, but I'm not going to tell you to do that. That is going to take us through our briefing for the day. A big, big shout out uh, to Brendan and Corey and Carrera. Thank you guys for joining us. Your patience is appreciated. Uh, thank you for joining us. You can join us Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday on our LinkedIn page at noon New York time. While you're there, jump in the comment section. Let us know your thoughts on the daily subject. Tomorrow, we have a huge, amazing briefing uh, that my uh, my colleagues, uh, Devery, uh, Devery Velasquez and da uh, Davian Harris will be hosting with Jennifer Brown. She is an advisory board member and an expert on inclusion in the workplace. She's got a great new book out. We're gonna have a deep conversation about it. It is going to be live and in the studio. Don't worry, we're all very tested. It's gonna be great. Um, and you definitely have to tune in for that. Um, so until tomorrow, consider yourselves briefed. Mm -hmm.